Good evening, everyone. You probably know by now that in two days this retreat will be ending. Strong mindfulness. (laughs) And then it's just the next retreat beginning. And sometimes I find that a helpful, helpful frame, that the practice stays the same The form changes, the context changes, but it's the same practice. Another story from my uh, days as a Zen monk. In the summer and winter, we would have these training periods. And actually, they're they're a similar length, uh, usually three, four months, four and a half months. And every month within the training period, we'd have something called Dai Session. And Dai, dai Session, dai, dai is great. And Session just means basically uh, a retreat or the heart of the practice. And after Dai Session, which is really a, uh, an, intensive, it was an intensive retreat, we'd have just another Session. And the, the name of it was uh, Nirikashi Session. Nirikashi, one way to, to translate it is it's kneading as in kneading the dough, as, as when you have a dough that's going to be baked into bread and you have to knead it. You have to work it with your hands, sometimes adding flour or water or oil until it just gets that right texture and then letting it rise, punching it down, and then eventually baking it into bread. And I appreciated that because it gave me this, this sense, the way it was explained to me, is that, that this retreat, after the retreat, was a time to knead the dai session back into our lives. To work the dough so that what you've been doing here for three months or six weeks starts to infuse your life. But it needs this working, the way you work dough. It sometimes needs some flour, some more oil. It needs this, this kind care and attention. And, and tonight, that's what I want to share with you, is just some reminders. Really, what I'll be sharing with you tonight probably isn't anything new, but is a way of reminding you of how to knead the dough, knead this, this, uh, this journey that you've been, in, been on uh, back into your life. Actually, I, I just had an email um, exchange with the person who interpreted for my Zen master for many, many years. And we were uh, actually talking about this word and, and he had a meeting with, uh, uh, with this uh, Zen master I practiced with. It was, it was quite a few years ago. And he said that what uh, Suzaki Roshi said is that uh, Nirikashi Session is in some ways it's just to, uh, it's to keep up the pressure. <laughs> That's a good Zen way of looking at things. <laughs> Luckily, this isn't a Zen retreat. And on another level, it's to remind uh, the, the practitioners that there is uh, no way to leave this world of the Dharma. That you can never leave it. You can never leave this world of practice. And this is one of the things I invite you to get a a sense of, to really knead the dough of this retreat back into your life. We need to come to understand there's no way to leave this world of the Dharma. There's no way to leave the world of practice. And a traditional Zen monastery in in the Rinzai tradition is set up along this... um, this idea to allow practitioners to get this, this sense of never leaving the Dharma. The way that the meditation hall is set up is that it's set up, the, it's the place where you not only sit, but you also sleep in there. And you not only sleep in the meditation hall, but you eat in there. And the idea is, is that you never leave the, the hall, the world of Zazen. You never re- leave the world of the Dharma. And it's set up that way because we, we don't get, we don't understand that that's actually just the way things are. They're actually, it's impossible to leave it. 
One of the things I appreciate about practicing doing retreat here at IMS, and I'm sure many of you got this feeling, is that the way the architecture is set up is that it can give this feeling sense of never leaving this world of the Dharma. I, I actually appreciate how the, the, all the rooms are connected with the dining hall. The dining hall is connected with the meditation hall. And over the days and the weeks, you might have started to feel that extend, that even it starts to extend even to include like the loop, where, it's, where you can feel being held by, by this, this world of the Dharma, being held by the world of, the pra- of, of practice. So again, how do, we, how do you need this dough of, of this retreat back into your life? How do you understand there's no way to leave the world of practice? And again, reminders, and as we've been saying at the beginning of, of these talks, please take what's useful and leave the rest behind. And again, this is important because the way this dough looks and the way it feels and the way we actually do the kneading, the, the, the working of this, this flour and water is going to look different for each and every one of you. We have this common thread of the Dharma and yet we have our own individual expressions of it. On a more mundane level, I think the, the thing, just to be honest with you, that I loved about Nirikashi session is that it meant that we had get, got to have a day off before the next session, which meant we got to get up at 5.30 in the morning instead of 3 o'clock. Sometimes I could spend a whole die session thinking about the 5.30 a.m. wake up. <laughs> I wish my, my intentions were noble, more noble, but that's what you get. So the first way of kneading the dough back into our lives, the first way to, to begin to get that there's no way to leave this world of, of practice is, is what we talked a little bit about this afternoon is the daily, daily meditation practice. Meditation practice in your daily life. And I appreciate that the question was raised, the question that gets most commonly asked to me as a teacher, which is how do I keep my practice going? Or my daily practice has slipped off, how can I get back on to making it happen? And it was nice, Annie and Rebecca shared with some, us uh, some practical tools around that. I just want to offer just a, a couple more in addition to that. And, and I want to uh, frame it with this quote by uh, Antoine uh, de Saint-Exubéré, which uh, I think helps give a sense of what's really important to keep a practice conti- uh, continue, uh, to continue with it on a daily basis. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn of the vast and endless sea. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, instead teach them to yearn, to yearn of the vast and endless sea. What allows you to deeply yearn for the vast and endless sea? to deeply yearn for the heart of the Dharma. Or in other words, what allows you to continue to be passionate about this path and this practice? Because I notice when I'm passionate about this practice, I don't need the discipline to keep it going. If I'm on fire, it happens on its own. And I noticed this around other things in my life. If I try to do something, I remember there was a time where I tried to learn how to juggle. I want to be clear, I still do not know how to juggle. (laughs) Why is that? I'm not passionate about it. (laughs) 
And I feel this is important because a lot of times I berate myself because I can't do things because I feel like I'm not a disciplined person. I don't think it's about discipline. It's about the movement of my heart. And, and uh, my practice stays alive because I keep in touch with my love, my passion of the, with, with the Dharma. And I notice when I nurture that, that passion, the practice unfolds. Uh, Bhante spoke a little bit about this a few nights ago. He was talking about uh, chanda, which, as he mentioned, sometimes is, is translated as, as desire or zeal. You could even translate it as, as, as passion, a wholesome passion in this context. So dhamma chanda or kusala chanda. And he contrasted it with kama chanda or, or the, the desire or the craving around uh, um, sense desires. This is an important ingredient for the unfolding of our daily practice that allows us to continue to knead the dough of this, of this retreat back into our lives. One quote from the Buddha, this comes from uh, the monastic rules, the, the Vinaya, the Mahavaga. He says, just as practitioners, the dawn is the forerunner, the harbinger of the arising of the sun, so possession of desire, of chanda, is the, forebring, uh, is the forerunner, the har- harbinger of the arising of the Noble Eightfold Way. Of a practitioner who is possessed of this chanda, this dhamma chanda, it may be expected that they will cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path, that they will make much of the Noble Eightfold Path. I find this striking that this is this is what what was is is the initial condition the forerunner of this path that we're treading is this kind of passion. And of course skillful skillful passion and I, I again I appreciate um Bonte's words around this, which sticks so much in my head, expectation-free rather than ex- expectation freaks. <laughs> I, 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 there's so many things about the way he taught that's really stuck in my head that I so appreciate. <laughs> that was one of them. How can you have this deep aspiration without the, the clinging that comes with expira- expectation? And this in itself is a skill. <coughs> How do you keep the pr- passion going for you? The passion for this practice going? What's a gateway into it? What's a, a gateway to keep that fuel going, that, that fire going? One way I get a sense of this is, I, is through reflection. And we might take a few moments right now, and that's the reflection of really getting a sense of what's important, what's important to you. And when I ask you that question, it's not what's important to you because of the books you've read or what you could pull out from these Buddha's teachings, which it might fit in with that, but really what's really important to you in this activity of, of living? It's a short life. And actually I invite us right now Let's just take a moment to to reflect on this in this particular way. So I invite you to actually just take a moment to come inside, just to feel the body sitting. Maybe contacting the breath. And I invite you to explore this in a particular way of, of imagining that you've come to the end of your life and you're looking back on your life. Maybe on a hill and you're looking over this vast unfolding of what your life has been. And when you get a sense of it, asking yourself, what really matters? What's important to you? What are the words that come 
maybe dharma or awakening family, friends, love, kindness. What are the feelings and emotions that might come? How does it reside in your body? And it might be right now just making a note of that, of whatever comes and honoring that. And then when you're ready, allowing the attention to come back out. Sometimes reflecting in that way or a similar way can be helpful. So easy to forget. I know I forget often what's important to me. And when I forget, I lose my contact with this passion for the Dharma. So it's... That's the, the first and foremost thing, uh, being passionate about this, this path. Again, during the afternoon um, session, uh, Rebecca and Annie went over some, just some practicalities of what allows a, a daily meditation practice to keep on going. One thing that's been helpful for me to remember in this context, in addition to what they were saying, is the reminder that daily life practice on the cushion feels radically different than retreat. Um, practice on the cushion. And it's funny, I tell myself all this, this all the time, and each time I get off retreat, there's some part of me that's chasing after <laughs> retreat meditation on some level. It, they're just, they're two completely different beasts, and they have two completely different feelings to them. Allowing daily life practice to have that feeling to it, and retreat practice to have that other feeling to it being aware that, of the mind that's chasing after some kind of experience within, within meditation or wanting it to feel a certain way. Another support, what's another support? And this is uh, both in the context of keeping the daily meditation practice alive but also the bigger context of reminding ourselves that there's no way to leave this world of the Dharma. There's no way to leave this world of practice so that we can continue to knead the dough of this, this journey into our lives. And this other quality, uh, just a, a story about this. This is a story about the Venerable Magia. Magia at one point was the Buddha's attendant. And at this point he might have been a a young monk and I'm not exactly certain why Ananda wasn't the Buddha's attendant on on this occasion. Ananda was usually the Buddha's attendant. But this day Magia was taking care of the Buddha. And in the morning Magia went into the neighboring village. He asked the, the Buddha, may I go on alms round for food? And the, the Buddha consented and gave him permission to go on his alms round. He walked into the village, gathered his alms, food, and on the way back, it says as he was going out to, for a walk to stretch his legs, he saw this beautiful mango tree. I don't know if any of you have seen a mango tree, but the way it's shaped, it can really provide this wonderful shade on a hot, sunny day. And when he saw it, he was very inspired to go practice underneath the mango tree. And so he gets back to the Buddha and he says, Venerable Sir, you wouldn't believe what I saw. I saw this beautiful mango tree that offers this wonderful shade for practice. And please, please, Venerable Sir, please allow me to go do what needs to be done. Allow me to go do the practice right now because I'm so excited to practice. And it's interesting what the Buddha said. He said, Magia, please, please don't leave me alone. Please wait until another monk can come attend on me. 
which, which I find kind of striking. The Buddha, when I, when I hear so many stories, is someone who practiced a lot on his own. So obviously he's trying to teach Magia something here. Something important about not being left alone. Please don't leave me alone. Magia, as these stories go, asks a second time. Please, pretty please. <laughs> oh, come on. I want to do what needs to be done. I want to fully wake up. Come on. Magia, please wait until another, another monk comes. Please don't leave me alone. And then, of course, Magia asks a third time, oh, come on, pretty please. And as you know in these stories, on the, on the third time, very well then, Magia, please do what you see is fit. <laughs> so Amigia uh, goes and to sit underneath the mango tree and it said as he's sitting there his mind is assailed by unwholesome thoughts <laughs> anyone have an experience of that? <laughs> so after quite a bit of that he goes back to the Buddha and probably says something, of course I'm paraphrasing. Venerable sir, you'll never believe what happens. <laughs> there I was sitting and my mind was assailed by unwholesome thoughts. And the Buddha said, oh, he probably said, really? Is that right? Huh? <laughs> and then he said, just so, Magia, and this is why one of the first requisites for this path is spiritual friendship. Noble friendship. Noble comrades upon this path. I, I, again, this is again not something new to you, but this reminder of how important the Buddha was saying spiritual friendship is. You could say it's biologically important. I always like to remind myself and others, remember the family that you come from. You're a mammal, and a particular mammal, one that uh, is, is very much uh, adapted to social engagement. It's the thing that allows us to move forward. It's something that we need to learn how to skillfully utilize. It's incredibly important. As the phrase, I love this phrase, that really this path, we can't do it alone. The Buddha is very clear about this. You can't do it alone. And no one can do it for you. You can't do it alone. And no one can do it for you. Important, important to have this quality of spiritual friendship in your life, however you can find it. Maybe it's going to a, a meditation group or as, or as we were talking um, this afternoon, which I really appreciated. Maybe it's something online. Maybe you have a Dharma buddy. If you live in a place where there's not a sitting group, start one. It's a beautiful thing. And I think it has even deeper importance uh, in terms of than just supporting our practice. I think it's also important in, in terms of how we see the manifestation of this path and this practice. Thich Nhat Hanh once said that Maitreya Buddha, the Buddha to be, the future Buddha, he says, will come as community, not as an individual. That's, what's in, that's what really inspires me these days about practice is not so much I wake up, but what is it to cultivate a community that wakes up? A community that has a sense of liberation. To me, that's powerful. And that's a deep understanding of, of noble friendship. Sometimes if I'm involved in a sitting group, in the past when I've been involved in a sitting group where I feel like I'm not getting much out of it, I remind myself of what it means to go to a meditation group, which is when I go to a meditation group, it's not about what I can get out of it. It's about offering my practice. 
It's about offering to be another person that sits in the group, that, that creates that group energy that allows the practice to unfold. And I find it's such a wonderful way to go because then each time you go to a group, it doesn't matter what happens in the group. Each time you can go feeling fulfilled because it's a, it's a chance to give rather than get. And I invite you to have that frame. What is it to actually give your practice in terms of community rather than what you can get out of community? Also, I want to acknowledge, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but just to name that this path that I'm speaking about is more than just sitting meditation and walking meditation, as you know. And again, this is something that was referred to this afternoon. The importance of ethics, such a key to this path. Daily life is wonderful for exploring the Brahma Viharas, or as Rebecca was saying, a Parami practice. And especially, Joseph spoke about this last night, just the importance of wise speech. Wise speech and learning that skill, asking the question of, is what I'm going to be saying, is it, is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? And is it useful? Checking in with those four things. It's actually a fifth one, I think, gentle, but I like to break it down. The, the smaller the list, the better for me. <laughs> is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? Is it useful? And I feel that having skillful speech really allows a community to deepen. One of the things I appreciate about the, the Sangha uh, in Flagstaff is that we've had this emphasis often about doing mindful speech retreats every so often, like the weekend after this one, we'll have a mindful speech retreat. And having a whole community have this value makes such a difference in terms of um, creating safety and, and creating community around Dharma. Much broader than just sitting and walking meditation. But I, I want to move on with this, this theme of kneading the dough, kneading the dough of this, of this retreat back into your life and the things that I find so, so important to remember. And especially to remember if I'm really getting a sense that everything, everything is within this world of practice. Everything was, is within this world of the Dharma. Because I have this mind, and maybe your mind is like mine, where there's always something that my mind wants to put out on the edges of this practice or out on the edges of the Dharma. As we were again talking this afternoon, like technology. Or as I was saying a few weeks ago, taking a shower. <laughs> those places that seem outside on those edges. And what I have to remember, and this is what I need to remember around difficulty, is just this phrase, the phrase, this too. This too is my practice. Oh, this too is the Dharma. And it can be difficult at times. And it, sometimes it's difficult after retreat. I remember the, the last retreat I did at Spirit Rock was a month-long retreat, and the focus I did was loving-kindness meditation. So I did a loving-kindness meditation for, that was the, the focus for the whole month. And I got back home, and my difficult person, who had been my difficult person in my loving-kindness practice, turned out to be a really difficult person. <laughs> <laughs> really difficult. It was, it was, you know, I, you know what it's like on retreat. I, I had this full turning around this person. Like my heart was so open to them. And um, things changed a little bit when I got off retreat. <laughs> and it, the, it was quite fascinating because there was a dynamic around her where there was a community that, a, a whole community was kind of melting down around this person. And uh, everyone was looking to me to figure out the right response. And it was tough. And part of it was because it shook my practice. It hooked me in some way. And, and my first reaction was, why is this happening? I just had a great month-long retreat and I was <laughs> coasting along and then this happens. 
this was not supposed to happen. <laughs> I mean, I did my loving kindness for my difficult person. <laughs> Why aren't they less difficult? Isn't that the way the practice should work? <laughs> At least that's the way I was hoping it was work. It'd work. And I needed to remind myself, oh, this too. This too is my practice. This too is the next retreat. Because I think I had this idea that, oh, now's vacation time. But it wasn't the case. There, w- there was my practice again. There was no way to leave the world of practice. There was no way to leave the world of the Dharma. And yet it felt like this shouldn't uh, be part of it. There's a poem by Denise Levertov entitled Benediction that I, I think expresses bringing everything into this, this quality of practice, understanding it in that way. And reminding you this word benediction, it's kind of a, a short prayer or a short invocation for, for divine help or uh, some kind of blessing. So it begins... Marvelous truth, confront us at every turn in every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air, dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile so that we know you. Terrible joy. Marvelous truth. Confront us at every turn in every guise. Iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile so that we know you. Terrible joy. I find this a beautiful benediction, a beautiful prayer. That marvelous truth, may marvelous truth confront us in every turn. And may it thrust close, thrust close its smile. And what kind of smile? Terrible joy. Not just the pleasant things of living, but also the unpleasant things the entirety of that, of that smile, the entirety of truth. And, and what an invocation of where we're uh, asking it to dwell, to actually dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, even the ordinary streets. Can you open up to this, that everything that you come to touch, that you come to experience, is an opportunity to practice. Nothing lies outside this world of the Dharma. Even trying to fix this. Okay. And there's, there's two ways that I, that I become curious about making everything my practices. One is asking the question of what am I leaving out of my practice? Getting a sense of those edges so that I can start to bring them in. And then another important arena is, uh, and, and we touched upon this a little bit this morning, but I want to spend a little bit more time on it. And that's the importance of trying to get a sense of my blind spots. What are the places that I have a hard time seeing that I'm leaving outside of my practice that I need to bring into the practice? 
and, and one story about blind spots that I think can help clarify the process a little bit. A few months ago, I was leading a retreat in Prescott, Arizona. And for lunch, I had this wonderful, what's called gorp, so it was filled with nuts, and which I really love, chocolate chips. So I was mindfully eating my gorp for lunch. And as I was finished, I went back, I went back, back uh, down to the meditation room, meditation hall, we were all sitting. And as I was sitting, there was still this strong aroma of chocolate. So as I was sitting there, hopefully nobody was looking at me, <laughs> I did the first thing that's really important around these things is I checked my beard. I don't know if any of you, some of you who has beards know what this is like. <laughs> You've eaten something and something gets stuck right in your beard and you have no idea that it's there. <laughs> so I thought, and especially I'm leading a retreat, I don't want like chocolate all over my beard, you know. <laughs> a teacher with chocolate in their beard. Uh, and luckily, nothing was in my beard. But I've come to learn, that's where I need to look because things get stuck there and I don't know about it. <laughs> this is wisdom. And then I did the next thing, which was after the, the uh, sitting meditation was over, I went into the bathroom to utilize a mirror, which is also really good for this. And what had happened, I have no idea how this happened, but there was all this, and my, I had one of these shirts that was a little bit more open like this, there was all this chocolate smeared on my chest here. It was just like this <laughs> glob of chocolate here. <laughs> which while I was blind to. <laughs> This was a blind spot. <laughs> so a few things about blind spots, if this ever happens to you. <laughs> There's two aspects to it. One is, um, for me to become curious about blind spots, I need to know the places where I'm likely to be blind. Where, where is this activity where I can't see things like my beard, where I don't know what's going on? And I need to check out those places on a continual basis, because all kinds of things can get stuck in there. <laughs> and I do it on two different levels. One is on the personal level. So sometimes, especially with meditation or other work, especially probably after this retreat, sometimes we start to get a sense of sometimes the, well, sometimes this can lie outside of a uh, retreat, of the habitual um, acts that we can get hooked by that cloud our mind and we need to be sensitive to it. So it could be particular arenas of being human. So we might have hooks, and especially around what I'd call shadow things, around money. Things that we really haven't um, looked at in terms of our relationship to money, or what came up this afternoon, which I really appreciated about, how do we relate to sex and being a sexual being? Again, something that really we can leave on the outside of, 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 of Dharma. Sometimes it's around um, relationship issues. I need to be aware of, where, of, of a sensitivity of where my blind spots might be, where these shadow places might be. And I need to check them if I'm really interested in moving the Dharma along. And it's the same also on the, the collective level. I need to be aware of where my blind spots are, uh, you could say, that, that can have collective ramifications. And where is that? And this is something that I really appreciated, at least what we were talking about in, in the, the group I was in, the, the non-POC group, of this, um, of this dynamic of blindness in terms of privilege. Where, where are you, do you have privilege where you might be blind to others and be blind to the harm um, around that? Very important. Uh, privilege in terms of, you know, some of it can be uh, how we look in terms of how we look in terms of skin color, how we look in terms of age, how we look in terms of gender or ability. Because it's so easy to forget these things of where the privilege is and it's with the forgetting or the lack of investigation that harm happens and harm gets per perpetuated on the collective level. If I'm interested in kneading the dough of this retreat, kneading the dough of this retreat back into my life of really understanding that, that there's no way to leave this world of the Dharma, this is important. 
And then there's the other aspect that I gave you, which is the, the mirror. So important. Where do we find the mirror? Again, this is why I told the story about Magia. Spiritual friendship, noble friendship, is so wonderful in terms of this. Having friends that you feel safe enough where you can give each other constructive feedback of the, of the places that you might be blind. It's, it's so important. For example, just this afternoon, I got together with um, some of my fellow teachers and we had this beautiful time of really sharing with each other of, of things that we were seeing that the others weren't seeing, giving each other some constructive feedback. Hey, this is what I felt in our interaction. Are you aware of this? It was, of course, part of it was painful, but another part was so relieving to have friends that could have a quality of love and care and to share that with, with each other because it's so difficult to see those things. And it's so wonderful to have a friend to say, I care about you, look what's going on. And that's how we create community together. A community, as we were talking about this morning, a community of safety. So I encourage you, where, do, where can you find those friends where you feel safe, where you can be the mirror to one another? So we can actually see these blind spots so that we can carry the Dharma forward, to have this vision like Thich Nhat Hanh, to, have, to, to, to create a community that is awakened, that will be the Maitreya Buddha. And this ties into the next arena that I wanna mention in terms of kneading the dough of this retreat back into your life, another area where you can explore practice. And some of you, this might have um, more importance too than others. And, and, and again, I wanna name, there's a wide range in terms of this. And this is kind of the uh, social collective level. And as I mentioned before, I think there is a whole range. As, as I, I think I was mentioning in my bodhicitta talk, that I see this practice that you've been doing uh, for these three months or these six weeks is a kind of social action. It's impossible for your journey here not to affect the world out there in some way. You don't live in a vacuum. It has a great impact in this world. And I feel that's important to remember. This is from, um, actually, I think, oh, this is from the numerical discourses. This is, again, something th that the Buddha shared. And remember, this is something that he's talking to uh, a whole bunch of people in his time. And I think if you think about the story I'm gonna share with you in our modern times, it, it gains a new meaning and a new feel for the importance of this uh, level of practice as well. And the, the title of this section of the numerical discourses is Adama, which is translated, I think Bhikkhu Bodhi translated as, as unrighteous. But, but I find the Pali interesting because what is it? Is Dhamma with a, a negation, Adama. So it's one without the Dhamma. So one who is unrighteous is one without the Dhamma. So when you heard this word unrighteous, to, to, to please think of that. See where to begin. The Buddha says, when Brahmins and householders are unrighteous, the people of the towns and countryside become unrighteous. When the people of the towns and countryside are unrighteous, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and stars proceed off course. When the constellations and stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. The months and fortnights proceed off course. The seasons and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the winds blow off course and at random. When the winds blow off course and at random, 
the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, weak, and sickly. An interesting description for our times. What happens when we don't live with the Dharma, if we don't live with the way things are? Seasons proceed off course. The rains get disrupted. Crops get disrupted. The earth gets disrupted. And when the people in towns of the towns and countryside are righteous, the sun and moon proceed on course. When the sun and moon proceed on course, the constellations and the stars proceed on course. When the constellations and stars proceed on course, day and night proceed on course. The seasons and years proceed on course. When the seasons and years proceed on course, the winds blow on course. When the winds blow on course, the deities are not upset and sufficient rain falls. And when sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season and people eat crops that ripen in season. They become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. When you live in accordance with the way things are, when you live in accordance with the Dhamma, it makes a huge difference on this planet. And when we get that, sometimes people feel a calling, a calling to do something more than just an individual practice. And I want to name, again, I think there's something powerful about what we're doing here. And this in and of itself makes a huge difference. And yet if we're moved, we can go farther than that. This next quote I want to share with you comes from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And I want to say a little bit uh, uh, about him to put this this into context. I think many of you know he's a monk rooted in the, the Theravada tradition and he's been in robes for over 40 years. And I feel deeply grateful to him because he's, he's one of the main people that's responsible for bringing the Pali discourses into English with these, these really exceptional trans, translations. And in 2007, he wrote a provocative article entitled, A Challenge to Buddhists, really well written. in in which he contends that we need not only the inward exploration of what you've been doing here on retreat, but the broader expression of it as well in the retreat. And and I I wanna say, I don't think it's a mere coincidence that this person who is so well-versed in the Pali discourses had come to this conclusion about what the practice needs to be as in, in terms of a broader sense in this day and age. And then one thing about this article, just from this article, I'm, I'm not going to read all of it, just a few uh, quotes from it. In 2007, uh, this nonprofit organization arose called, the, uh, uh, called Buddhist Global Re- Relief as a, as a way of being inspired by this article he'd written. So he says, Today, greed, hatred, and delusion have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore, requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. 
I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is a share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. I find this striking. Really saying that Buddhism in our age, what it needs, it needs to stand up in this particular way. It needs to have this collective dimension if we're really invested, if we're passionate about the spelling greed, hatred, and delusion. Again, it's, it's something to, to consider, to reflect upon. And I think in that same article, he gives really kind of specific instructions of how to do a compassion practice for a little while and to see the issue that kind of moves you. And not to take on everything in the world, but to take on one issue. And when we uh, take on one issue, there's... Two things I I want to uh, point out, which I think are important to remember that we can get entangled with when we take on something. One is exemplified by this uh, story by uh, Kobanchino Roshi. And one of his students once asked him, he used to go and work with the dying. And one of his students asked him, you know, when you go and visit and or by the bedside of, of those people who are dying, how do you help them? And he said, help them? And the student said, yeah, help them. And he said, oh, I don't help them, I meet them. Sometimes we can get entangled in this idea that here I am going to help this person or help this situation. And sometimes what we first need is the willingness to meet it, to meet the person. That's what I love about this practice and what a wonderful thing to spend three months or six weeks to train the mind and the heart to meet experience rather than get entangled with helping it or fixing it to simply meet it. And then one last thing in this realm, and this comes from Thomas Merton, which is the other side of this. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help every, everyone and everything is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. Those are strong words that when you take on too many things in your life, that's actually an act of violence. That's a breaking of a precept when you take on too many things. And it doesn't help anyone to do that. As he says, because it destroys our inner capacity for peace. I invite you to be aware of what you take on, to do this challenging practice that moves towards simplicity.
So I want to end just with some practical things of things to keep in mind as you leave this retreat. And I actually don't have a lot of time, so good luck out there. <laughs> I guess that's what I'll say. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are the important things? <laughs> I, actually, I think one of the important things, and I, I want to uh, start again with a story of a, a friend of mine who in the Tibetan tradition, she had finished doing a um, what's called nundro. And nundro is this, these four practices that usually people begin with in many Tibetan traditions where you have to do uh, usually 110,000 prostrations, 110,000 vajrasattva ma- mantras, 110,000 mandala offerings, and 110,000 rep- recitations of this uh, mantra of, of Guru Yoga. And as you hear that, you probably hear, it takes a long time and it's tough. It's a very committed practice that can take quite a while. And she completed her nundro and she asked her teacher, her Rinpoche, what, what practice should I do next? What should I do next? And he said, celebrate. <laughs> which to her was kind of bizarre, but it makes so much sense. I, I really encourage you to take some time to celebrate what you're completing. It's such a rare thing in the world. It's such a wonderful thing. Please, please take time to celebrate it. It'd be a shame to let that pass by, such a celebration. We're here to celebrate wholesomeness. We're here to celebrate goodness. And as I was saying in a past retreat, that in itself is a skill and it makes all the difference in the world. When you leave here, it's important to remember that also you're more sensitive than you think. I remember... um, Hopefully it won't be this dramatic for you, but I remember I used to do longer retreats in Nepal and uh, the idea of transition days, no, <laughs> there was no understanding of transition days, at least when I was practicing in Nepal with Saito Vivekananda. You'd practice to the very last day and then you'd be off. And so right after that, I was off to Kathmandu and the next morning I found myself in uh, eating breakfast in this small um, restaurant and the TV was on Oh my God, just thinking about it. <laughs> I was having my breakfast and it was just, oh, it was so weird. The, it, and of course, TV news, there was some, something horrible and tragic that was on and I was so sensitive that I completely, I had a complete meltdown. I mean, it was just, I think when I was finished, my eggs were just like swimming in tears, you know? And then my poor waiter, you know, <laughs> wondering, was something wrong with the eggs or something? <laughs> you know? And then everybody else, you know, and I think that was the juxtaposition is here is like, I'm just like completely melting down about this thing in, in the news and being around nobody else that's not melting down made me melt down even more. <laughs> so I was a little sensitive. <laughs> so I invite you, for me around the news, that's something I need to really be sensitive to. Also, moving, being in moving cars or vans, like after my last Spirit Rock retreat, wow, it was like, it was like bad acid all over again. <laughs> you know, <it> was like <laughs> which I don't recommend. So, so some practical things. So when I'm in a car, a lot of times closing my eyes is really good. In an airport, sometimes I find the airport is too much. There's always the bathroom. <laughs> bathroom stalls are wonderful. To really see <laughs> if you can give yourself a little bit of space as you're transitioning back. And may it not be as challenging as it, been, as it has been for me at times. And also just um, 
it's so important to go slowly these next few days and no major decisions. Sometimes, you know, I, I get off retreat and it's like, I feel like I'm so clear about this and that in my life. And those uh, take time to just kind of um, mature a bit to see if they really fit. Yeah, so may all of you need the dough of this this wondrous uh, retreat that you've been in. May you need it back into your lives in a way that, that leads to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's uh, just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.